Welcome back to another Croconomics episode, where we talk to experts about important issues around the world where I wear Crocs. Today we will be talking with Sean Jacobs, Associate Professor of International Affairs at the New School and founder and editor of Africa is a Country. We will be talking about the intent behind the founding of AFRICOM, as well as the United States' intention with their foreign policy in the African continent. My first question is, what do you believe the intent was and is behind AFRICOM's founding? Um, so, I mean, the U.S. is a, is a, is a, like a superpower or an empire. So empires like to, you know, control the world. Like, you know, they want, I think it was a, uh, a Cheney who said something like, knowables like you the knowables or whatever you need to know what's going on in the world like so they want to sense you know i mean the, i think the us is unique in that way i don't have the total number on me but they have like hundreds of bases around the world on every continent so it makes sense for them to try to to have bases in africa i think the second reason which is more the immediate one is after 9 11 um they saw africa as like a kind of a central place you know where the war terror would take place well one because you could recruit people from there to well if you're a terrorist organization and the u.s viewed you as an enemy secondly you could you could um manufacture weapons like especially bombs i know that they went after certain places like libya sudan you know so i think it was that um and you know i suppose they had a case like the the, some of the people who blew up uh, the embassy in Kenya, um, you know, they, they, they were from another African country often. They were from Somalia, they were from whatever. So it's like, if, you, if you're looking at it from their perspective, I would argue that I think it's a mixture of the, um, as an empire or a superpower, you would like to be everywhere. And I, but I think more immediately, I think it had to do with war and terror. Yeah, and so what do you think the United States stands to gain economically from their activities in the continent? Right, so Africa is is important for the U.S., I think mostly because of energy needs, like oil. Um, the I think in the top 10 oil producers in the world, at least three or four on the African continent right now, Nigeria, Angola, um, and there's a possibility of like the exploration of gas in Ghana, I think in Cape Verde, you know, Algeria is another one. So if the US economy relies, as in for an energy source, it relies a lot on oil and it makes sense for the US to would like, you know, well, it, it has, it's, it's multi, multi, US multinational corporations are involved in those places like Chevron and so on. So it, it makes sense for the US um, to, if you if you want, not so much, well, the word is not really control, but to manage like those resources, to have like a, to have control of how those resources are being managed. So I, I think it's mostly, as I said, it's mostly to do with, with oil. I think secondly, it also has to do with, um, 
if you look at the, the components that you need when you make a cell phone, a lot of that is in Africa, particularly in the DRC, which is a country that is, a, it's, it's, a, it's like one of the largest countries in the world. I think it's like three times the size of France. It has like five uh, time zones and that there's a lot of mining going on there. Um, and it, so for those reasons, economically it makes sense for the US to have some say in what's going on there. Ship routes is the other one. If you look at Djibouti, which is where the US has like a, the whole country is like a, literally like a US base that has to go, do with ship routes um, through the Indian Ocean, like the, to what they call the Horn of Africa. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's part of the reason why Africom's there. Um, so you kind of alluded to this, but you think the, the AFRICOM has been a continuation of the United States' tradition of imperialism? So the, I, I, most likely, I mean, that's why I said it's an empire. I think it, most likely it's a continuation of US, of US imperialism, but I think they do it differently this time. They tr or they try, well, well, yes or no. It's an old tactic to kind of create the impression for the people that you're involved in these kind of endeavors that it's in their interest. So they, they present it as training. They present it as like, um, we here to like defend you against these terrorists or destabilize, you know, um, uh, the destabilization of your country. I also think it, it's always in the interest if you, have, if you are a dictator or an authoritarian leader, uh, what the US does for you is like, you know, it helps you to control the population because if you're if you're a dictator, the U.S. is your is your ally or your partner, um, and what they 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 doing something for you. They control helping you to control the to, they helping you to control your population. Um, uh, but I, so so yes, there is there is something old style about it. But I think they also the U.S. I think also takes into account that it works for whoever is their local partner. It's obvious that it works for both. It's it's an empire doesn't always just works for the one who's doing the, who's controlling you, but it also works for like local elites. Um, I think on the second one is it has to present it as um, it's doing it for this broader thing called the war on terror. I mean, nobody supports terrorism. I mean, it, you know, it's not a reasonable position. So it can present it as like, we're involved in this endless war against terrorists. It's not a country. It's just like moving target um, and nobody will object to that. So those are like, so, so, so when you say like, is this kind of old school imperialism? Yes, but it's also imperialism that has, that creates like a public argument as to why it does what it does. I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it to end this. I'm doing it to take on this enemy that all of us are fighting. Not just, not just us as the US and our interests, our corporations, but it's also so that you can have peace. So they present it as kind of, which by the way, is actually a, a, a rationale that imperialism also used. Remember imperialism said, uh, you, are, you are behind and we're trying to help you catch up. You're uncivilized and we're trying to civilize you. So, you know, it, it, you need a rationale when you're involved in something like this. Yeah. And so how, how do you think, since it was founded in a way, um, Obama and Trump have wielded AFRICOM differently. So I think for Obama, because Obama had like, uh, Obama was very much kind of like an old style, I would say US leader. Even if Obama was like cool and, you know, he was black and he had a symbolic link to Africa, 
I think he was just very much a sort of very conventional American president, which is to sort of think of the U.S. as a superpower, to think of the U.S. as doing good in the world. So, so one is like the, U, the U.S. is a superpower. It's the U.S.'s role to control the world. The second one was like, and we, when we do it, we mean well. It's for some kind of higher purpose. I think that was Obama's way of approaching it. At the same time, so, so that, that tension between I'm, I'm projecting this kind of cool, uh, even won a Nobel Prize, right? But at the same time, there's, st there's statistics that show you that uh, his government, even way more than Trump, was busy like murdering, you know, people with drones. Uh, the, the, you know, under him, like there was an expansion of US military presence overseas, yeah. et cetera. Donald Trump came in um, with two things. One is, I don't think Donald Trump had like a, had like an ideology or an idea of like how the world works. I don't think Donald Trump was that sophisticated. With Donald Trump, it was mostly about domestic political power. Like in the US, Donald Trump very rarely talked about the rest of the world. When he talked to specifically about Africa, he, he classed them collectively under what he called like shit countries. And if he was interviewed, he would say something like, oh, my friends, that's a place where some of my friends are making money. And I don't think he, you know, he meant like in diamonds or, or oil. So it was, it was a place where you made money or, and it's a place where people come from that are undesirable, that you don't want in the US. I think that was sort of Donald Trump's, he was also kind of playing, I suppose, to his base. At the same time, he had to show himself to be this like strong man but in the game that, in the, in the way that he was conducting politics, um, he didn't, Africa didn't feature like as a threat. Like, you know, he didn't have, I don't think he had a, as sophisticated understanding of how that worked. Remember when those soldiers were murdered in Niger? They were on a base. I mean, yeah. I'm trying to remember what the controversy was, but he didn't want to go see the, he never went to see the family. He never said anything about their grief, and so he was heavily criticized for that, right? So he didn't, he, I don't think he had as much as an understanding as say um, uh, Obama had. I think he was more concerned about like say the Middle East, particularly about Israel's place in the world. Like, I mean, this is actually interesting when you when you say like, what's the difference between Obama and, and, and um, Trump? Africa only featured more recently when he, he had Morocco, um, agreed to to recognize israel right similarly sudan he, he got he got sudan he he took sudan of a of a terrorist list like sudan was seen as a terrorist state and there were sanctions against them by the us i think under obama and he trump took them off that list because they agreed to recognize israel he's doing the same with morocco and in exchange he's giving morocco the right to control this territory called the Western Sahara. It's Morocco colonized. Spain used to rule it and Morocco colonized it. Um, and the people there are fighting for like, political independence. So Africa only exists, I, I would say, in Trump's imagination in relation to something else, in relation to Israel. And then the, one of the last quick point, um, and in relation to sort of like white nationalism. So the other place in Africa that Trump often talks about is South Africa. And he talks about white South Africans who he claims, well, there, there's people there who make this kind of claim, which is a ludicrous claim, that there's a genocide against white South Africans by the black government who's deliberately 
going out to kill white people. There's no, there's no evidence for this. There's no statistics for this. Um, but Trump repeated that, you know, in a public forum, he tweeted it. So it's mostly, it's mostly about in relation to white nationalism. And I think in relation to uh, sort of domestic political, you know, American politics, Israel is big in American politics. So that's how Africa relates to Trump. And by the way, Trump just, I think he just announced that he was withdrawing troops, including from some African countries. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how, how do you think, how do you think America has effectively hidden AFRICOM's actions from the public and from the U.S. public? It's not, it's not that hard. <laughs> Most Americans don't care about the, the rest of the world. And most American media don't report about the rest of the world. They only, as I was trying to say in the previous answer, they only report about the rest of the, rest of the world in as far as it relates to American politics. So it's not that hard to, to you know, get Americans not to know, care, or understand about the role of like an American force that is um, fighting somewhere else. And I think here's another, here's I think what is probably the key point for me. Within American politics, you don't, even if you're of, even if you are from the other party, whether the Democrats in power or the Republicans, you don't criticize the U.S. military. You also do not criticize what they would say the men and women. You know, you, you know this American tradition of saying like, "I appreciate your service when you meet like a soldier." Mm -hmm. uh, the, the regardless of what war America fights, it it celebrates its soldiers, and the TV news does that. Movies, you know, even if it's even if it sort of uh, shows that war or that conflict that they've been involved in as somehow uh, haphazard or lacking moral clarity, whether it's Vietnam or Iraq, the idea is that you cannot criticize like American soldiers and you cannot criticize American foreign policy. You can criticize how it's being conducted, but the aims as to why they're there, why is America in Africa, like that, you cannot question in, in American public discourse. You could argue that like more recently younger people or people who are socialists, like, you know, DSA members or whatever, like the day Bernie Sanders, maybe as the sort of best public representative of that kind of politics would criticize American foreign policy. But I would say overall, whether they are elites who are like who are knowledgeable with all this stuff, who know what AFRICOM is, they don't criticize US foreign policy. And uh, ordinary people, uh, they often don't know where these things are. I mean, there are Americans who think that Africa is a country. So, you know, how could they even make a distinction between Djibouti, Liberia, and Cameroon? You know, they see a story that the U.S. just built a massive base in, I don't know, northern Cameroon, and that that base is used to deal with, uh, with um, you know, uh, terrorists or armed insurgents in the Sahel. They're like, firstly, where's Cameroon? What is the Sahel? You know, what is Niger? So that's, those are like, it's very, it's, it's, it, except Niger became a word because of, um, uh, what was it, when, 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 they, when during the Iraq war they said they, there's uranium there, or when Colin Powell made up that story about uranium, or it's now with the soldier who died in the, you know, but it's mostly about the soldier. It's not about why, why are we there. It's about the loss of an American life. Yeah, I think that's a dangerous, dangerous that like America sort of, that both parties just praise the military without 
without like actually investigating or spreading knowledge to the widespread public. And that dates to the 50s, by the way. I think it's Eisenhower, the famous kind of, when he, when he described the, the way that American power works as a military industrial complex, which is the relationship between corporations and, and the, the military. And then in popular life for regular people, that's represented by like, you know, General Electric, like GE. Like it, it, it's not, people don't see the linkages, you know, Boeing, people don't see the linkages, uh, uh, Lockheed Martin, Black, um, the firm that, oper- there's that other firm, I forgot the name now, we used to operate in Iraq, um, not Blackstone, but you know, like that, to Americans, they, they don't understand like that's what that is about. Uh, do you think if there was more widespread knowledge of what America is actually doing in the continent, there would be change and there'd be change for the better? I mean, I think there's, I think we're moving towards that. I think that regardless of whether the mainstream media reports it or the U.S. government um, uh, obscures it, it's going to become more and more difficult because one, I think the role of the internet, you know, the, the, the fact that um, people have cameras, that you could live stream, I don't know, you could be, let's say you're like a young person in Djibouti and using the right kind of hashtags, uh, doing it at the right kind of day, um, you know, and, and, and it's the way you present it, you can go on live, whether it's Instagram live, whether it's Facebook live, whether it's on Twitter, what used to be called Periscope, or YouTube, and you could, you know, you could stream. That's one thing. There's there's a lot more little media companies that that if you Google Africom and Djibouti or Africom drones, you can find that stuff all over YouTube. Like you know, there's the information is out there, and there's of course there's also the danger of of um, uh, propaganda, false information, etc. and so on. But I think I don't I don't think it matters. To some extent, it does matter, like what the American media is showing American citizens. But I think it's going to become harder and harder to conceal these things from people because there's all kinds of media um, that exist on the ground. I also think that Americans, younger, and I, and I, yeah, I think I have faith in younger Americans. I think younger Americans, including people who is often the children of immigrants, they are better at at making the linkages between the actions of the U.S. government and something that's happening, whether it's in Africa or South America or Asia, they can actually make those connections. And so like, you know, this is, this is, this thing is, an, is, a, is the result of a US policy in that place. So, so I think that's becoming, that, that's um, uh, becoming normalized. And then I think there's, there's all these interesting um, public representatives. I think for me, probably the most significant person in this whole um, situation is Ilan Omar. Ilan Omar was a, uh, an American um, member of the House of Representatives from, from Minneapolis, whose, whose family came from Somalia and were refugees here. And I think she sits on the, the House uh, um, Foreign Affairs Committee. She's very vocal about how the US produce and reproduce you know, power and policy in Africa and speaks out about it. Um, that she's also linked to four or five other Congresswomen, Cori Bush, Alexandro Ocasio-Cortez, who all make these kind of connections. So you're going to have these people, they're going to not just, be, you know, because they make, they, they're very good at making moments with social media likes. 
So they'll speak in Congress. Whether the news picks it up, they'll put it on their own Twitter account, they'll put it on their own Instagram, and then people will follow it. So I think there's a, it's a mix of just, um, there's enough different kinds of media that is challenging this, the, the sort of silences or the blackout on how Americans learn about Africa or what the government is doing in Africa, which I think over time um, will help to, 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 you know, to change, to change this. If you don't, because regular American media, when they tell you a story about Africa, the way they're going to tell it to you is, they, they tell it through what they call a bridge character. That is somebody that Americans can identify with, which is usually like a white person, an American soldier who's in that place. So then the story becomes about Americans. But the people who are doing it on the internet, you know, they, they don't have to think about that. That, con that, is, that consideration doesn't come into view. They just make a program. They just put it up. And if the content that they make is like interesting enough or you know, striking enough, then people will watch it. This episode was produced by Tobias Paperno from his studio in his living room on GarageBand, and this project was made possible by Mr. Moscow's International Political Economy class at the Deakin School. Thank you so much for listening, and tune in next week.